Does a brick in the mouth prevent vampires? Well, the internet says it's true. Well, hello again. Welcome, welcome, welcome to The Internet Says It's True, a podcast where every week we learn something that sounds like I made it up, but it's really true. And uh, I'm part of the WCBE podcast experience. My name is Michael Kent. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, I hope you stuck with me through last week's chat GPT episode. If you didn't hear it, the entire episode was written by AI. And I have to say, I actually felt horrible about that. I felt like by not writing the episode myself, I was sort of like cheating the listeners. I promise I won't be doing that again. And this episode is 100% researched and written by me. No robots. It's a lot of hard work. And one of the ways you can support that work is by becoming a Tizitor. That's the new name I'm calling my Patreon followers. The internet says it's true anagrams to Tizit, T-I-S-I-T. So that's how a lot of my files are named, Tizit. So I thought it would be fun to call my supporters Tizitors. So welcome back, Tizitors. For those of you who are already getting the bonuses there, you can join at patreon.com slash michaelkent, and you can join for only $1 a month, all the way up to a million dollars a month, at which point I will name the podcast after you and possibly one of my dogs. Once again, that's patreon.com slash michaelkent. Go check that out. You can also get merch at the Tizit website. That's the internet says it's true.com. And all Patreon supporters get 20% off of the merch. Today's episode is a really fun one. This story came out in 2005, but the story really takes place in 16th century Italy. It was the mid-2000s when the archaeological superintendent of Veneto in Italy promoted a research project on mass graves. They were on an island just northeast of Venice, Lazaretto Nuovo. A few years ago, Jack White had an album and a song called Lazaretto, and I remember Googling it then. It's a word for an annexed area for isolating undesirables. In the ages of plagues, it was necessary for people to be quarantined to these islands, but they used them for criminals and those deemed to be insane. Lazaretto Nuovo was the second Lazaretto in Venice. It literally means new Lazaretto, as opposed to Lazaretto Vecchio, meaning old Lazaretto, an older and much smaller island that housed plague victims in the 1400s. Lazaretto Nuovo was a larger island, around 22 acres of land. It was established in 1468, when the Venetian Senate decided there needed to be more space to quarantine those affected by plague, and the old Lazaretto wasn't big enough. It remained as a health quarantine until the 1700s when it started being used as a military fortification to protect the Venice Lagoon. It stopped serving any military function in the 1970s, but now the island is opened for archaeological and educational tours. It was one of those archaeological studies in 2005 that our story starts to take shape. An archaeological dig had discovered a mass grave from the plague. Hundreds of skeletons were discovered but one in particular raised the eyebrows of researchers. A skeleton with a brick firmly placed in its gaping open jaw. There were no other bricks nearby. It wasn't a coincidence or accident. It was evident to the scientists that this brick had been deliberately placed there. So they set out to find out why. They were first looking at why those graves were there to begin with. The first Black Plague tore through Europe in 1348, and Venice was hit incredibly hard. They responded with these two lazarettos, 
the old one in 1423 and the new one in 1468. The new Lazaretto also acted as a quarantine station for people coming to Venice from the sea. They could be checked for symptoms of the plague there before being allowed to come into the city. There were two additional plagues that hit Venice, one in 1576 and one in 1630. Most of the people who were sent to the island with plague never left. That helps to understand the mass grave, but not the body with the brick in its mouth. By measuring the bones, they could tell that the person was a woman who most likely died in her 60s. The researchers started looking around at burial practices around the world from that time period, and that's where we find out about the Shroud Eaters. In German folklore, the Nachzerers, or Shroud Eaters, were a very particular type of vampire. They're a little different than the normal vampire we hear about. They don't become a vampire from being bitten or scratched by one, and they don't spread their vampirism to other people. But it's related to communicable disease. The first person to die from a plague is said to become a shroud eater. They were called that because they would begin by eating their own burial shroud. Then the shroud eater would feed on their own body. Finally, their loved ones and family members would become weak or die as the shroud eater was feeding on their life force from the grave. I found a couple other sources that said Shroud Eaters were created when a death occurred from suicide or by accident. The brick in the mouth was a practice that was put into place to prevent the person from eating their shroud. In the case of the body recovered in Venice, it's believed that the body was not initially buried this way, but exhumed and reburied with the brick. The likely explanation for this is when the body was uncovered, it was seen that the burial shroud had a hole around the mouth area and was assumed to have started to eat the burial shroud and thus deemed to be one of these vampires. Another thing that would have clued them toward vampire is that parts of the body were thought to have continued to grow like fingernails. The brick in the mouth would of course prevent the body from eating more of the shroud and would protect other people from losing their life force. Of course all of this sounds pretty crazy, but there's a logical explanation for much of it. And we'll talk about that after a few words from our sponsors. I want to tell you about a new sponsor that I'm really excited to be working with. I'm not sure if you've tried CBD products, but they really have improved my life personally. It's a hemp derivative that helps me sleep, especially in hotels and on the road. Adventru is a company you're going to want to know about because who doesn't love a night of restful sleep? I'm telling you. I have one of those beds that sends a sleep score to my phone in the morning. When I started having a CBD gummy at night, my sleep score went up 10 points. Adventru is a brand new hemp company bringing you all natural, high quality hemp products. If you're trying it for the first time or you're an experienced user, they've got the answer to help you sleep. They're called Drift Gummies and they're made with all natural ingredients and popular hemp compounds like CBD and CBN. They've got valerian root and lemon balm in them. Drift is flying off the shelves, and I don't want you to miss out. So go to adventru.com, that's A-D-V-E-N-T-R-U-E.com, and enter promo code WELCOME15 to get 15% off your first order. Once again, that's adventru.com, or just visit the link in the show notes. If you love listening to this podcast every week and you want to show your support, that would mean a great deal to me. 
You can do that by becoming a Patreon member. We've got members at all levels, whether you want to pledge $1 a month or $10 a month. Just think about the value that you receive from this show. And if you like the histories and the stories that you learn about or the jokes that you hear, and if you think that they're worth it, consider signing up. For that, you get every episode ad-free and a week early, access to bonuses like the unedited videos of the guest appearances, and 20% off all merchandise. You can sign up today at patreon.com slash Michael Kent. That's patreon.com slash Michael Kent. There was a time that humans used 100% organic products as healing balms and moisturizers for their skin. Well, I've partnered with an awesome company that wants to get back to those times. Fatco sells organic and responsibly made tallow-based skincare products. For centuries, humans used tallow in skin moisturizers and healing balms, but unfortunately, the topical application of these fats seemed to stop around the same time that animal fats stopped being considered part of a healthy diet. A lot of modern skincare products do more harm than good by stripping your skin of its natural oils. Let's change that. You can try them out now at fatco.com and get 15% off your order by using my promo code INTERNET. Go to theinternetsaysitstrue.com slash deals for the link. So what's the truth about this vexing Vampires of Venice story? Well, we know that the body with the brick in the mouth was definitely uncovered. We know that that's true. And most accounts point to the brick not being there by accident, though some theories do state that it could have happened when dirt was being moved around on the island. I mean, this is an island that's been purposed and repurposed so many times, lots of buildings were built and demolished through the years. Most seem to think that the vampire story is the likely explanation for the brick. Of course, there's no evidence that anything like a vampire exists, but the folklore and the ancient beliefs are very true. There's an ancient book, Damascation Moratorium in Tumulus from 1728. I'm sure I just butchered the pronunciation, but it translates to on the chewing of the dead in their tombs. It's quite literally a scientifically worded dissertation by Michael Ramft of Germany about this phenomenon of shroud eaters. We know that science evolves and improves with time, and before we knew how bodies decompose, it would make sense that when a body was dug up, the mouth would be the place that would show signs of decomposition, which would then affect the burial shroud in that area. The brain is the first organ to decompose, and if insects and critters, sorry, this is gross, were to have access to the body, that would be a pretty easy place for them to enter. Critters and insects also help to understand the idea of a shroud eater feeding on its own body. Now, I already mentioned how they thought that the nails continued to grow It's just another case of people not understanding the science. What really happens is the skin sort of shrinks up and makes the nails look longer. And the same happens with the mouth to make the teeth look longer and open. And there's this idea of the vexed family and loved ones, right, that we talked about. Remember, we're talking about the age of the plague. And if you had the plague and you lived near people, there's a good chance that they would become sick too. And there were some really backwards ways of thinking about health back then. In the age of the plague, people were told not to bathe. This is before people knew about germs and bacteria. So it would make sense that they would see family members of the sick also getting sick. They would see these corpses with their long nails, hair, and exposed teeth, and just assume that these were the signs of a shroud eater. So this ritual of 
blocking their mouth with something like a large rock or a brick was born. According to Matteo Borini, an anthropologist from the University of Florence, quote, to kill the vampire, you had to remove the shroud from its mouth, which was like its food, like the milk of a child, and put something uneatable in there. It's possible that other corpses have been found with bricks in their mouths, but this was the first time the ritual has been recognized, end quote. So, while the internet says it's true, remember that there's no such thing as a shroud eater, just stupid humans who didn't know any better, and those of us here to tell the stories 400 years later. It's time for the part of the podcast where I call a friend. And today we're calling one of my good buddies from college. He has gone on to be a founding member of an incredible group, So Percussion, S-O. Uh, they're a New York-based touring percussion group who has performed in Carnegie Hall and many other famous venues literally around the world. He's also a co-director of the NYU Steel Band and Chamber Music Program and one of the educators of the Steel Drum Class at Princeton University. What is going on, Josh? Yeah, listen, man, just uh, over here living the dream. I feel like I just talked to you the other day um, about uh, we we did your podcast, which is called the Concert Honesty Podcast. It's not about concerts. It is about honesty, uh, but it's used to be about concerts, but it's now sort of blown up into other things. I actually really enjoy listening to that podcast. Um, And and usually it's because of like you'll post on Facebook. Hey, I had this really interesting conversation with this person. It's about this. And some of the topics are pretty deep. Uh, we talked about, uh, gosh, we talked about a lot uh, on the upcoming one. As a as a fellow podcaster, I will say that I'm very uh, envious of your podcast. The internet says it's true that I'm I'm honored to be a guest, but you have really gotten on some radar. I think you were on NPR, right? Yeah. Like a, a podcast to listen to. Like, you know, you are you've done a great job of being very consistent and in in producing these shows and my podcast is sort of like when i talk to somebody i like to talk to i put it out so like npr has no idea that i exist which thank you i I appreciate the the kind words and i would love to do a podcast like yours where uh, it's a little bit more free range and and can we can just talk and get real Mm -hmm. um but the the issue with me doing that and is the same one that you're up against and that it's really tough to do something like that and have it every week because you have to schedule a guest. And sometimes like we talked for two hours the other night and I know not all of your mm-hmm. episodes are that long, but um, I know that if I get talking to people about serious stuff, it's going to be that way. And yeah. that's a lot of time. Um, now, granted, I don't have the, the writing time for, you know, this takes a long time to write, but except for last week I where think- I just used chat GPT for the entire episode. Well, I think for I think that I think there I think what the beauty of both of our podcasts is that both can exist and serve totally different purposes. And for me, like you're doing a, a really beautiful thing with yours. Um, uh, with mine, I mean, my intentions are not to make money or to even really have people listen to them. It's sort of like I'm doing a, a sort of a collection of conversations with my friends so that at my funeral everybody knows who my friends were. Oh, you know, like so. There's a very dark impetus to your podcast no not at all i want i want honest to god i feel like at my funeral what i want is like 400 different ipods just playing every podcast at once and you can just walk around and meet all of my friends at your own leisure you Um, know what we should do at your funeral assuming that you die first is um (laughs) we should all have name tags with the episode number that we were on 
Yeah, it's a very selfish motive. I'll, I, you know, I'm I'm copying to that. Like, uh, it's mainly just for me too, just to remember all my friends and get to talk to them and document it and know that 300 years from now, somebody will be able to find a conversation I had with you and well, be like, wow, I can't believe that's the problems they were talking about in 2023, you know? Well, I hope that, you know, if to, to turn this around a little bit, that people aren't talking about the weird topics that I brought up uh, when they were on my podcast. I mean, some of them are, it's okay, but like some of them, you know, we got together and talked about Nazis and stuff. I don't want that. I don't want necessarily. Yeah, but Mike, for me, it's just, it's the, the beauty of two friends talking and sure. two friends talking, not just at one point, but over the course of a lifetime. And, um, you know, I remember the very first time we met, I think it was at a summer session and I was totally like, just intimidated by you because you had way faster hands and quite frankly, probably still do. Um, and I just was like, I got to follow this guy around wherever he's going because he's got the ticket. And I wasn't wrong. We, we went in the same year 40, though, right? Now at 23, I'm here and I'm looking at you and I'm like, Man, I'm so glad that I made that call when I was, you know, 20 years old or whatever, 19. We, we played the the drums in this was our, our rookie year was the same year in in the marching band at, at Ohio State. Did you audition one year and not yeah, get in? That's right. Yeah. I so I had another okay. I had a, a previous year of experience in, in trying out uh, and got cut my freshman yeah, year. So, so, yeah, I had been I had. I don't even think I knew that about you. I just knew that like, oh, my God, this guy knows which way to turn so i'm just going to stand by him <laughs> <laughs> plus you were a big carter beauford fan and i was you know i was i was a closet date carter beauford on a drums a, carter beauford on a drums okay yeah, yeah. so um i told you the other day you asked what this was about and i never tell um i think there's been maybe one episode where i gave the person a hint as to what it was going to be about i don't even remember there was a specific situation but i told you this is going to be about something that you know nothing about and if you do know something about this i'm going to be shocked because I just learned about this story. And that's kind of what the podcast is about is like, I don't know any of these stories until I start looking them up. And for this first question, we're going to play for a joke. So if you get it wrong, you have to tell me a joke. And if you get it right, I'll tell you one. So, all right, but, but Mike, I have one. Can I just tell it anyway? Yeah. Yeah. If you prepared one, absolutely. So proud of this one. All right. <laughs> okay, good. Great, yeah. Great, great. We'll hear it. We'll hear it. Um, in 2005, an ancient skeleton was found in a mass grave near Venice, Italy with a brick shoved in its mouth. Which one of these describe how researchers describe that strange find? So when these anthropologists or archaeologists or whatever found this skeleton, this is how they described it. A, it was the body of someone believed to be a vampire. B, it was the body of a liar. Or C, it was a member of the ancient Brick Eaters cult. Uh, I'm going to go with just because I think people were, and I'm, 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 I'm forgiving them for this way of seeing the world, but you know, you see the world the way you see it based on the knowledge you have. I'm just going to go with the logical choice for me is the vampire. Like, I don't know this person's biting people, shove a brick in their mouth. <laughs> Believe it or so not. I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with option A. That is exactly what they thought he she was. Mainly because considered... I just lived through a pandemic. We all just made stuff up trying to get through that. So yeah. I'm going to guess that. That's exactly what had happened. And, and you're more on the nose than you think, because this type of vampirism that they believed in was very closely tied to the plague. Um, yeah. And okay. this wasn't like this wasn't like uh, the normal vampires like we see in movies where they go out and try to infect people by biting them or scratching them or whatever. This was the type of vampire called a shroud eater that they believed in that that ate on people's life force from the grave. 
Um, mm. And so basically they had exhumed bodies and seen that the mouth was starting to rot and the teeth looked like they were open and, and the shroud, their burial shroud would be, you know, gone around their mouth. And those were all natural things, but they saw that as they're trying to eat the shroud and that's the beginning of them eating more stuff. Um, so you got that right. I'll owe you a joke and then you can tell me yours. This all one, right, um, I had a, I had a lot of trouble finding a joke that I liked this week. Um, this one's a little long. A man met a beautiful girl and he decided he wanted to marry her right away. She protested, but we don't know anything about each other. He replied, that's all right. We'll learn about each other as we go along. So she consented and they were married. And they went on a honeymoon to like this very nice resort. And one morning they're lying by the pool. He got up off his towel. He climbed up this 35, 35 high, 35 foot high board. He does a two and a half tuck gainer entering the water perfectly. No ripple. And this was followed by three rotations in jackknife position before he gets up, straightens out, cut the water like a knife. After a few more of these impressive demonstrations, he comes back, just casually lays on the towel and she goes, oh my gosh, that was incredible. And then he said, you know, I used to be an Olympic diving champion. You see, I told you, we learned more about ourselves as we went along. So she gets up, jumps in the pool. She starts doing laps. She's moving so fast that the ripples from her pushing off at one end of the pool would hardly be gone before she's already touching the other end of the pool. And after about 30 laps completed in just minutes, she climbs back out, lays on her towel. She's not even breathing hard. He goes, that was incredible. Were you an Olympic endurance swimmer? And she said, no, I was a prostitute in Venice and I worked both sides of the canal. <sighs> God. All right, mine's not as... Mine's not as sultry as yours. That was um, it was kind of sultry. I wasn't expecting it. I mean, it was the only one that made me laugh. So there you go. All right, knock knock. Who's there? Control freak. Now you say control freak. Who? <laughs> That's good. <laughs> I like that. Is it? Does it That's go further it, yeah. if I say that, or no? Is that the joke? No, that, okay, it. That's so good. I like it. Uh, <laughs> That's great, man. So what's up your, your, your group. So percussion, what's the latest with, with that? Where have you guys performed lately? Where are you going to perform? We did a tour in Europe, uh, right before Christmas. Um, we were in, uh, Germany in, uh, Barcelona and then in London. And we were touring the show with a singer songwriter named Caroline Shaw mm -hmm. of this new album called let the soil play its simple part. Um, and the title track is me and Caroline. We have a, I play steel drums, which is something I started doing when I was in high school. And she sings this text that she wrote. Um, <clears throat> but there's like, there's three other duets. The rest of the tracks are us as a band, you know, so percussion with Caroline, you know, and as a percussion quartet, it's weird to feel like you're a band and not a percussion group, you know, like, like over the last 17 years of being in the group or whatever, like we sort of morphed into these roles. I play a lot of bass roles adam plays marimba so harmony and eric is like weird toys and jason does drums you know and when you say you play um, bass so we, like are you talking about bass guitar synthesizer oh, like okay low synth, um a lot of stuff on steel drums too but but a lot of like low bass marimba low synthesizer things like that um but i will say like of the things that so's been doing recently uh, there's one project that we were doing with uh shodake talaferro who's a beatboxer from baltimore who you should all know he what was that name again absolute Shodake, S-H-O-D-E-K-E-H. Shodake, Talaferro, T-A-L-I-F-E-R-O. And he's a beatboxer, um, but I think he would call himself a breath artist. He does a lot of like 
soundscapes with his breath, breath, and uh, but he's super knowledgeable about Bismarck Key and 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 uh, you know uh, the Sugar Hill Gang and like the all of the the whole genre of beatboxing. And and so he he did a piece that he sent to us, and we transcribed it and arranged it as a percussion ensemble. And he performs with us now. And so, like, I would say, like, of the things we're doing right now, we're recording that piece this weekend. Uh, and then we're doing a couple shows with Caroline to sort of rehash that tour from from uh, from December. Um, and I will say, like, in my last chunk of time with So, it's like we play a lot of hard percussion ensemble rep. John Cage, Steve Reich, David Lang, like, all that stuff is great. But honest to God, just playing songs with our friends has been sort of like yeah. the older we get, we're like, why didn't we do this the whole time? That's funny. <laughs> you know, well, uh, so, so I, I I think check that check that out. Let the soil play its simple part by uh, Caroline Shaw. And so percussion is where now. Does that have any tie? I know that uh, I saw per- an old performance from when so percussion was on Tiny Desk um, at the NPR mm-hmm. studios and you were doing things like playing percussion on flower pots. Is there a tie-in mm-hmm. from that to the name of this? Let the soil play its simple yeah. part. Okay. Yeah, I mean, Caroline. Caroline was a student. Sorry, when I say this, it's sort of it's a loose. The term student doesn't really apply to Caroline and us, but she was at Princeton during a time when So was teaching a course on writing for percussion ensemble. Um, and it's not like we came in with a syllabus and we're like, "Here's what you're going to write." You know, we were sort of like showing them, like, "Here's the kitchen sink. Like, come play in the sandbox with us." And Caroline comes out of a long tradition of. Uh, like playing chant and singing and violin playing and folk music. But she also knows about John Cage. And so, and that's like the world we come out of where flower pots and things that are around your household, metal pipes, conch shells, things that you aren't traditionally um, musical instruments um, is where our bread and butter is. And so we met Caroline at Princeton and she took a class of ours and just started being like, can you try this? Can you try this? And then she graduated we became friends and now now we're we're doing this so yeah the tie-in is very much related to uh, john cage and specific a lot of the early percussion rep we studied in school but she has now made it her own in this like really beautiful way and then we've sort of blown up tried to blow up what cage and rice and all those folks were, were building on to make it something you know hopefully unique sure so you and i have have seen our share of stages and so for this mm-hmm. next question if you get it wrong You'll have to tell me an onstage horror story, something that didn't quite go as planned. And if you get it right, I'll, I have many. So I'll tell you one of mine. Uh, this is a simple question that is very difficult. You've traveled all over the world. I don't know how many times you've been to Italy. Um, I've been to Italy, but I've never been to Venice. Venice is made up of how many islands? There are three options for you here. A, six. B, 118. Or C, 28. So your options are 6, 118, or 28. I've never actually been to Venice. My instinct was B, um, but I'm going to say, there's an old saying, when in doubt, Charlie out. I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with option C, 28. So when in doubt, Charlie out was like, you know, when you do the standardized testing and there were, there was a D and it's like they, studies had shown that the people that made those tests made C like the most popular answer all the time. In this so case, chosen, you should have yeah. chosen B because the answer is B. You should have gone with your gut. Okay. Uh, all right. Well, my instinct was on, your, was on par. That, that your instinct was on par. Um, so next time go with the instinct. Yeah, it's 118. It was, it was the application of those instincts that really is really where I tripped up there. <laughs> yeah. Unless you count like, you know, Charlie out out of four, but Charlie out out of three is B. So Bravo out doesn't Bravo have out. 
it doesn't really have the same ring. Uh, yes. All right, so now I got to tell you that story. Well, yeah, but first, uh, I, I just read that I thought this was interesting. Um, those 118 islands that make up Venice mm-hmm. are connected by 400 bridges and 170 waterways. And, you know, like Venice is like the streets are water and they use gondolas instead of. But they actually don't have cars uh, in the inner city of Venice and they don't have roads for those cars. So it's a weird thing. I saw pictures of like trucks being lifted onto boats to load their wares into the city, which I had never thought about something like that. But apparently that's a thing that happens. How has I mean, I don't know if you've done this much digging but like how is things like global warm i mean we sometimes when you hear about global warming, you're like well new york and florida is going to be underwater and like oh. I, I don't know enough about any of that stuff but like venice is like they're all rivers so like what are you know, canals so like There's, how has it affected them it's a great question i don't know i do know that there are studies going on on how to keep venice from sinking because the whole city mm. is sinking it's sinking very slowly like a few millimeters a year so over mm. in the last uh since 1900 it sank two inches total so, um, you know, it's a very slow, but they've been doing things like shoring up, um, you know, putting stuff, uh, really heavy weights in the ground underneath buildings to try to compact the earth, which to me, that says, you know, that's going to make that building sink faster. But I don't know anything about geogra- uh, ge- geology or whatever. So, uh, all right. I want to hear about your, your onstage horror story. All right. Um, I will say this. I have many. Um, and they're, all, you know, on the spectrum of, you know, first degree murder and, and third degree manslaughter in terms of things that I'm cobbled on stage. Like, I don't know exactly where this falls. I have, I have something on all the spectrums, but coming out of the pandemic, the, one of the first things that So Percussion did was play a concerto by David Lang um, with the Cincinnati Symphony. And that was on the second half of the show. The first part of the program, there was some other rep. And then we so came out and played along with the orchestra being conducted by um, um, uh, this conductor named Louis Longre. Um, and he was, it's it's uh, this music by Jean Baptiste Lully, who is a composer and a conductor, French conductor. I think in the 1700s. I'm terrible with dates. Um, this piece called the Bourgeois Gentilhomme, the Bourgeois Gentleman, and there's you know tambourines and it's a little bit like Monty Python. I think if you're like okay, like picture the coconuts sort of like in the background, right? Like that's what the percussion sort of would say. Yeah, that's what the percussion stuff is sort of evocative of, and. But there's one instrument called the Turkish Crescent, or also called the Jingling Johnny. Uh, and what it is is a big, long staff that has this huge, like, head on the top of it with all these bells and metals and ringy things. And you just stamp it on the ground. And what would happen in Turkish armies, they would have, like, hundreds of these. And there'd be a whole wall of it. And it would just be, like, uh, frightening, like, just banging it into the ground to, like, freak the yeah, that's a lot of crap out of it. Yeah, yeah, right. absolutely. Um, but it's now sort of like morphed into this instrument that is a color within this music. Well, um, the the parallel here is Jean-Baptiste Lully is also a composer who died of gangrene of the toe. Okay. Because he conducted with a big staff, not a jingling Johnny, but he conducted with a, a big rod and he would stamp it into the ground so the orchestra heard the time. Well, he jabbed himself in the toe and got gangrene wow. and died. Wow. Now... I'm playing this Turkish crescent. I'm coming out of the pandemic being like, we are back in person. There's people <laughs> here. Like we survived. And I'm jing- I'm banging this jingling Johnny on the ground and it comes apart slightly. And when I slam it back down to the ground, it catches this part of my hand. Like you're the, just the fa- like the air, the webbing between your thumb and your finger. 
and cleaves it all off. <gasps> and I start bleeding uncontrollably on stage, except I don't feel it as blood. I'm just like, man, I'm really sweaty. And I'm just <laughs> up there just jingling Johnny on the way. And I look down and there's a pool of blood like at the base of this thing. It's covered in blood, except I had already reached like the piece ends and the, the, the audience is going crazy. And I reach up to shake the hand of the conductor, Louie, and I oh, shake no. his hand and just smear him with blood. Oh, no. And the, just the look of horror on his face. And I'm I'm like realizing in real time that it's not sweat. It's blood. After the now, entire world has just been made hyper aware of a communicable disease. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Then we walk off stage. Then we have to come out and perform the concerto. And I'm like, I run off stage. There's like two minutes before we have to come back on and play a four movement concerto as the four of us with this orchestra. Ugh. Jason Truding from Supercussion is like wrapping my hand with gauze. I walk out there like the Stay Puff, Mar Stay Puff Marshmallow Man with like a stick <laughs> taped to my hand. And then we have to do a whole recording session after the show is done. Oh, no. And I just am like the ghost of Jean-Baptiste Lully really came back and bit me in the ass. So, um, in the thumb. Just a word of, a word of caution for anyone playing Lully's music. If you are on the Jingling Johnny slash Turkish Crescent part, proceed with caution. That's all I'm going <laughs> to And in the Monty <laughs> Python vein, uh, he got better. So uh, there yeah. you go. <laughs> he got better. <laughs> That's good. You have a scar? You have a cool, cool uh, percussion uh, scar to yeah. show for it? It's in there somewhere. Nice, yeah. nice. I remember I had a math teacher once who he told us, uh, so he, he worked as like a park ranger in his, you know, because he was a teacher and like they didn't pay him enough in Urbana City Schools. And mm -hmm. he, in the line of duty, had something happened and he cut that part of his hand open, that webbing. Mm -hmm. And he turned into like a, a schoolboy giddy when he told us about how cool it was when he could see inside of there. He was like, it's just like a pocket. It was so cool. And since then, I've always wanted to see inside of that part of my hand. So can you affirm? Well, or Yours was full of blood. I didn't so maybe... go that far. Okay. It, was, it was a pure trauma moment. And I just, I didn't have time <laughs> to look at my hand. I had to go back out and play a show. Like, well, and just make sure I could hold my stick, you know. I greatly appreciate you reliving that for, uh, for our entertainment. So for the Likewise. next question, question three, and, and you're killing it so far, by the way. If you would have gone with your instinct, you'd have been two for two. Uh, we're going to play for a sticker which is uh, one of these bad boys. And when I come to, to New York to hang out with you, I'll, I'll, bring, I'll bring you one. Excellent. Which one of these is a strange plague symptom that history has recorded? Uh, so this one uh, is, is a little bit of a, of a strange one. A, laughing hysterically without being able to stop. B, dancing mania where people would dance uncontrollably. Or C, skin became magnetized. Um... I want to say laughing hysterically. The laughing hysterically without being able to stop. The well, uh, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna guess that I'm wrong, but I'm gonna say why I guessed it. Okay, uh, yeah, go I for it. I'm guessing that the plague. I've never had it. I'm guessing that, based on having had COVID, it made me feel absolutely crazy. I'm gonna guess <laughs> that the plague maybe tat touches into that on some level. It might make you feel like you're laughing hysterically. So I'm gonna go with that. The answer is B, Dancing Mania, where people would dance uncontrollably. So, yeah, so, like, I had heard about this as a, um, like, a dancing disease, where, where it was more of a contagion of behavior. So, like, people would do it, and then, then that would convince other people that they couldn't stop doing it, and it was sort of like a, I don't know, like a placebo effect or whatever. But numerous sources discuss how Dancing Mania may have simply been the result of stress and tension caused by natural disasters around the time, such as plagues and floods. 
And it's been recorded in different places in human history where when there was some sort of crazy thing like a plague, there would be these large groups of people that would dance and not be able to 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 stop dancing. Um, even people who were in these, you know, these quarantined Lazaretto islands would be dancing uncontrollably because they apparently were just tense, <laughs> stressed out. And I don't know. I don't I don't dance when I get stressed. I Lexapro wasn't invented yet. So like they <laughs> yeah, just right. had to dance. Right. But also like, you know, meth wasn't illegal either. So who knows what? Uh, yeah. I could, yeah. There might have been some other things in the mix there that caused that. But Yeah. So no sticker for you. I might bring you a sticker anyway, just for, uh, you know, putting us up right. in your in your extra room. So uh, for question four, we're going to play for doing the dishes. So if you get it wrong, you've immediately got to go do the dishes when we're done. I don't know if there are dishes okay. to be done. I know that I have a sink there full are. of dishes right now. So if you get it right, I'll immediately when we get done here, go upstairs and do the dishes. Um, and okay. if you if you get it wrong, this one's for Allie. This one's yeah, for Allie. If you get it wrong, I'm leaving them for Allie to do. So, <laughs> oh, sorry. One of these okay. is something that people used to do to prevent vampires from rising from the grave, and the other two are just things I made up. A, they would put a giant stone over the grave to keep the supposed vampire from escaping. B. They would remove the eyes of the supposed vampire so they couldn't see their victims. Or C, they would sever the feet of this supposed vampire to keep them from being able to walk. Boy, um, I'm going to go with B, taking the eyes out. The answer is A. They put a giant stone over the grave... And the idea was that, uh, you know, they wouldn't be able to move this stone. Um, and but so taking the eyes out would have been so much easier. <laughs> it would have been. Uh, I mean, good Lord. Yeah, there's a uh, there's a name for it. And I'm trying to come up with the name for it. Um, Dolman. D-O-L- like, is there a certain D-O- weight of stone? Like, no, just a, a giant flat horizontal megalith uh, called a dolman. And. In some instances, you would see it setting on top of smaller stones. Um, there's one in like upstate New York, but it's called a dolmen. But I don't think there's any sort of lore associated with that one being a grave. They That one is mm-hmm. just sort of, uh, they don't really know how it got there. They think maybe it was left there by the glaciers. But when you look at it, it looks like man-made. Uh, it's a giant stone resting on these tiny little stones. But the dolmen wow. is, uh, yeah, they put these things there so vampires couldn't get up out of the graves. Which to me, that's like more zombie protection than vampire protection. We're also afraid of dying in the dead. Yeah. Yeah, we are. (laughs) You know? Yeah. And what's really strange is like, you know, the only way that any of this stuff came about is from exhuming the bodies, right? Like they didn't think a lot of these people, they didn't think they were vampires when they buried them. It was if they dug them up and they saw what we all look like after we die which is not pretty. And they would be like, that's scary. I'm going to name it a vampire. You know, like I'm going to say that there's a reason this body looks this way. Yeah. You didn't know. You, I mean, this is the other thing. Like, uh, do you know where the term saved by the bell comes from? I, I think I have heard that one. It has, like, it is a, there was a time in human history in medical history. We didn't know that people could go into comas. Right. And so like when oh. someone goes into a coma, you think they're dying, they're dead. You would bury them, except there was enough, someone survived enough so they started installing a string that would be tied to your toes or your feet and so if you woke up in the grave and started moving around it would ring the bell 
and people would know like you weren't dead and they would dig you up like that's where the that's where the tv shows i'm sorry screech and zach yeah. morris and like ac yeah. slater that's all based on the idea that like there was a point where human beings were like holy crap i didn't know that person wasn't dead yeah and also <laughs> i know? think the term dead ringer is from that as well that right yeah i think so and graveyard shift i believe is also associated with that because people would stay out there to listen for the bell this is oh my god mike well this is where like i think you and i all of our text conversations our podcast is like we need to have better empathy for the past do we (laughs) like there was just like there were people were just like you guys hear something oh my god Susie's alive yeah (laughs) they would like that was you know, today we wake up and there's some tweet from Kanye and we're all like freaking out. But it's like, no, it was the bell ringing because Susie isn't dead. Like, so let's just have a little, little, little <laughs> empathy for the past. You know, <laughs> it was way harder than, than it, it was. Now. <laughs> it was way harder back then. And I think about like, you know, whether how much we should blame, you know, gullibility of people. And like, obviously, science is always improving. And I sort of talked about this in the episode a little bit. Like, science is always improving. It's not that people were stupid. People were ignorant. They just didn't have the information. And it reminds me of back when you and I were in, uh, we were band camp counselors. We were drum instructors for a band camp. And uh, the the movie Blair Witch Project came out. And like, I am a skeptic and I don't believe in ghosts, but I remember being scared out of my mind that night. And I remember you saying to me something that has stuck with me. You said, uh, I don't know if this is something your dad had told you or someone told you. Uh, I'm very curious what you're about to say. Yeah, you said uh, you shouldn't be scared of the dark because it's the same as during the day, but just without light. And I always <laughs> think about that whenever anything is like scary to me, like it has to do with the dark. I mean, like it's it looks exactly the same as it would with a sun. It's just that the sun isn't there. And uh, I also think I think at 43 now, I would I would just put an addendum onto that phrase of like, if you're watching a movie like Blair Witch Project or Friday the 13th, just know that all of those characters, when they go cut, there's a craft services table with like chicken wing, <laughs> low main, like right on the other side of that camera. So like Jason Voorhees is definitely pounding some Chinese low main after, after his taste. That's so. true. That's a good, that's a good point. Uh, it's really, it's really funny. Like the guy with who, the saw movies, like all of that shit. There's somebody behind the camera with like a chicken wing, just be yeah. like, oh, can the I guy in the Mike Myers mask is exhausted because they've done 30 takes of the same sequence. And, uh, he's, and he's so a vegan tired. and needs a smoothie made by some, some poor assistant on the set who just was like, I can't yeah. make the, how do I make Michael Myers a smoothie? You know, he like, can't wait to hear cut so he can call his agent and complain. Uh, right. Anyway, just if it makes you feel any better watching horror movies, like <laughs> it does, it does, and it's weird because I don't really remember being like scared of stuff like that, but I remember that. I remember definitely being scared, oh. staying in the woods in a cabin the night, and I didn't know what Blair Witch Project was about before we went. It was just playing, and so we went and saw it, and um, I, I just, I definitely remember, you know, being scared I, as 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 a forty three year old man now, like watching a lot of the phenomenon in media and entertainment, like. It was the first version of a like, uh, like a hoax reality. Yeah, it was the show. first found footage horror movie, and all of the you know paranormal activity, all of those came from. I mean, it was the first mainstream. I'm sure that that existed, but it was the first one that was in theaters and mainstream theaters right. for people to see and right. consume. Um, right, and it's it's just it's just really fun to sort of be of a generation that was in that in real time, and yeah. now are seeing seeing the spinoffs happen and um. 
anyway, I mean, just, there are some great ones. I've seen I, like the paranormal activity and VHS and some of those are like just really great, scary movies. And, and I, I dig it. So you've done horribly on this podcast, Josh. Uh, you have gone one for four. You've gone one for four. Um, but the next one is all or nothing, right? So this was for all the marbles. All right, all right. If you get it wrong, I'm never asking you back. Uh, if you get it right, <laughs> if you get it right, uh, I'm happy to have you back. We'll do it again. Here's the question. This is an open-ended question. What is a superstition that you personally have? Um, before I walk on stage, I know that this is really dumb and feels sort of broy, but before I walk on stage ever, I have to fist bump everybody I'm going to be on stage with. Hmm. So whether it's just the three of, or the four of us and so percussion, like if like, you, no, I don't not, I do not walk on stage without being like, all right, I and look them in the, it's like toasting before, you know, yeah. like you look someone in the eyes when they toast, when you toast and the, just a little fist bump to be like, we're about to go to war. We're good, right? Like, yeah, just checking. That's a in. weird. Well, now, why do you I, think I, that's broy? I don't know the fist bump and just, just the idea. <laughs> like, I think like, I think the pandemic stopped the bro, the fist bump from being broy because now a fist bump is much more universal, right? Like everyone can fist bump now. Well, but the fist bump. I mean, I I'm also a big handshake guy, and that right. the pandemic killed that. I love handshakes. Do you? That's like where I I, I learn I learn so much about people based on their handshakes. Um, and but the fist bump uh, superstition wise it has to be a fist bump that's that one that stuck with me i have a hard time walking on stage well that's a correct answer so we'll give you that one and uh you'd be <laughs> I'd, I'd really love to have you back on here sometime yeah i i'm not a superstitious person um i'm a little stitious but i uh i i generally but before you walk on stage, yeah before you do your shows like there's i have one thing i do there's nothing no what do you the, do? uh it's a vocal warm-up it's a mouth warm-up so I, okay. I, I warm up my plosives. I say P's, T's, and K's, uh, and I do it uh-huh. both as a mouth exercise and a brain exercise. So I do five of them, four of them, three of them, two of them, and one of them. So I go, and, and then I, then I, I alternate PTK, PKT, PTK, just the sounds, not the, no vocalization, just you know i do that and uh i guarantee physically it's not doing anything but i think mentally it gets me in that headspace that i'm about to perform um i used to do all kinds of stuff like um push-ups and and jumping up and down to try to get myself like super excited um and i've found like none of that makes a difference the 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 p's and t's and k's if i don't do it i feel like i just came in off the street and i don't know what i'm doing so it's a weird buffer between outside and inside. It's but that's like you. But what you're describing is is. I mean, I would I would push back and say that your warm ups actually do help what you're doing. The thing about a what how I describe a superstition is that it actually does nothing to the performance other than a placebo effect. Yeah, possibly. I I don't it's know like, that it like does you, anything. You touch all the corners of the door before you. Oh walk yeah, totally. Like, like whenever that's a that is a that has nothing to do other than a sort of mental dopamine hit. I I don't know if you remember this, but in the days of um. Ohio State marching band, I would drink a pregame Coke. Uh, mm. And I did that for every home game that, that I marched in. I drank a pregame Coke and it didn't matter. Like, and I would do this in the morning. So I didn't, you know, when we're, when it's a noon kickoff, we were there like, I'm drinking that Coke at like seven in the morning. <laughs> it didn't matter to me. I just had to, and I do only that. had two years of that, that with you. So I don't, I don't know how that, 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 uh, that, that morphed over the five years of your time there. But yeah. 
I mean, I remember there's several, there's like just weird traditions, like superstitions that we all did in the marching band of like, that had nothing to do with whether or not like things you touched, like all, just all oh, the yeah. dumb, like, you know, like Notre Dame, like be, play like a champion today. Everybody hits that sign. That has sure. nothing to do with whether or not you can catch a ball. Yeah. Objectively. <laughs> yeah. It's just a, like how many other generations of people have hit this. I'm part of this. But going back to your superstition is I would argue that that definitely has something to it as well in that. Um, it's important to sort of have the peace of mind to know that you have connected with everyone before you're about to go and do this thing and you've checked in and you know, not only you can relax to know that everyone's there that's supposed to be there, but also that, you know, you've made that eye contact and that says something in your mind to sort of settle it down and say, okay, we're all on the same page. We're ready to go. We're at that point. And also like performing is a weird thing in that it feels like a million things could go wrong even though this is something that you've rehearsed and you've done a ton and you know that uh, you've got it down, they just feel like so many variables. It's really nice to have something that is the same to make you feel like it's just another repetition of this thing. It's, it's really nice to have that, that continuity before the show. And for me, it's not only the vocal warm up, but it starts with the way that I set the show up is the same every time. The, the mic check that I do, I do, you know, when I'm checking my microphone, I do the same spiel, which is from my stars routine. Stars begin as whirling clouds of dust and gas in the interstellar medium caused by gravitational instability inside of molecular clouds triggered by shockwaves from supernovas. It's a whole thing. Um, and it's a, like a science spiel that I do. And all of these things make it feel like it did at the last city. And that helps to sort of relax nerves and that type of thing. So also a way I, I think for me, superstitions sometimes for me, my superstitions are not private. They're group superstitions. Like mm. I don't, I can't fist bump myself and feel good about walking on stage. I have to participate in some sort of uh, exchange with somebody. Um, and you know, male, female, trans, it doesn't, I don't give a fuck. Like I'm just gonna put my fist like this and yeah. everybody, a small baby, baby instinctively is like, you know, it's enough <laughs> of the zeitgeist, but everybody knows what that means. You know? Sure. And it's a way of me saying like, Hey, listen, no matter what happens, when we walk off stage in two hours, nothing about us is going to be different. So like, I'm going to fist bump you here and I'm going to fist bump you at the end. And what's going to be different is us in 30 years. Right now, let's not get too tangled up in what's about to happen and let's just enjoy our time together. And like that, for me, that is the message I try to put across with the fist bump. Because if you start to think of like, all right, if I don't change myself in these two hours, if I don't change my entire magic audience and blow their minds, like it's like, no, 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 no. The evolution of Mike Kent is thousands of shows over the course of your lifetime where you've moved the ball an inch forward every time, you know. And I think as as a musician playing with people, as an artist, as a magician working with people, people change slowly. And so like, and you do too, I do. So let's 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 just fist bump. We'll get through tonight. See you tomorrow. Absolutely. <laughs> I'll do this again tomorrow. You know. So, <laughs> well, anyway. uh, with that said, I'm giving you a a fist bump through the camera right now, and uh, it's always awesome to uh, to talk to you. I want everyone to to go check out So Percussion uh, for one, which is SoPercussion.com. That's S-O, Percussion. Uh, if you're in the area, they will be playing at the Kennedy Center on January 30th. That's uh, with with Caroline Shaw. That's uh, what he spoke about a little bit earlier. Um, you can check that out. Also, please don't forget to listen to the Concert Honesty podcast. Uh, you can just hear a lot of really great conversations with a really wide range of people. And I, I know that you 
you say you just use this to kind of hang out and chat and learn about people. But one of the things that I've noticed is you are not afraid to have conversations with people with whom you do not agree or with uh, maybe you don't understand their point of view. You understand that uh, talking about it is the, the best way to learn. And I, I really that's what I like about it is uh, I always hear something in which my beliefs are challenged. And uh, I love I love doing that because this show is all about, you know, I, I love learning new things. That's what that's why I started doing. Thanks, this. Mike. I appreciate it. And it's I think your diagnosis is spot on. If I want to be understood by the world, then I need to demonstrate understanding to the world. Love it. Love and it. If I don't do that, then how could I expect anybody to understand me? Um, easier said than done, to be clear. <laughs> Just sort of like I know that's not an easy thing, but. In my experience, I'm now like 300 and some odd podcasts in, wow. uh, and yours is going to come hopefully this week. Um, in my experience, I'm right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so take that for it. <laughs> All right, buddy. Thank you. Good to see you again, and thanks for coming on. Love you. Man. Well, that is all for this week. Thank you so much to my friend Josh Quillen for being my guest. Here's some actual audio of a shroud eater. Thank you for listening to The Internet Says It's True. To listen to episodes ad-free and a week early, support us on Patreon. You can do that at patreon.com forward slash Michael Kent. If you learned something just now that you didn't already know, go to the Apple Podcast app and leave us a review with five stars and a few words. That helps us a ton, because that's how the algorithm works. I don't know what an algorithm is, but just do it! See you next week for a brand new episode of The Internet Says It's True! The Internet Says It's True would like to thank the Patreon subscribers whose monthly contributions help to make the show possible. Dallas Ray, Sean Brown, Bryce Swanson, Eugene Anderson, Matt McVeigh, Jim Martin, Joanne Martin, the show's official Emperor Kick Track. The show is written and produced by me, Michael Kent. The theme song is by Finite Music Forge. All audio clips in this episode are used for education and commentary and used under Fair Use Title 17 U.S.C. Section 107. You can listen to past episodes by searching for The Internet Says It's True wherever you get your podcasts. And you can see bonus content at patreon.com slash Michael Kent.